Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Emily Duffy. On behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Tonight, we'll be hearing from Leah Labresco, author of Arriving at a Men. Leah is a blogger who also works as a statistician in Washington, D.C. She's a 2011 graduate of Yale University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in political science. In 2012, Leah was featured on media outlets ranging from CNN to EWTN when she announced in her blog that she was converting from atheism to Catholicism. Leah worked as an editorial assistant at the American Conservative. She also has served as a curriculum developer, research associate, and research analyst. She has appeared on CNN, NPR, and numerous other media outlets. She has also contributed to the American Conservative, First Things, and the American Interest. In her recently published book, Leah describes her amazing spiritual journey from atheism to Catholicism. Please help me to welcome Leah Labresco. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Um, I want to just take some time to tell you a little about me, a little about the book, some of the stories and weird analogies you'll find in the book, and then leave the rest of the time for questions. So first, a little about me. I grew up as an atheist, um, and I became Catholic in 2012. And that tends to be the thing people ask me about. You know, How did you change your mind? What convinced you? What was the moment? And how exactly did that moment feel? And you know, I won't say it's not an interesting story. It certainly entertains me. Um, but it also is a story that starts with, you know, when I was a child, I was intensely interested in deontology and also in love with Inspector Javert from Les Miserables. Um, so it's kind of a confusing story, and it's not a very universal story. You know, God finds a lot of ways to bring us to him from wherever we start. And I started in a relatively obscure part of the global belief world. And to be honest, there's an extent to which that, you know, thinking out my life is primarily centered around my conversion feels a little weird. It feels a little like a misplaced emphasis to me. It's a bit like if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and got up to the bit where Lucy discovers that there's a way into Narnia through the back of the closet. And they went, wait, you found a magical closet. Can you tell me more about how you found it? Which other places do you look before you considered hiding there? How long did you wait exactly before you walked through past the coats? Because you know? You know, a new world just opened before you. You don't want to spend forever thinking about the process that led you there, but how you're going to live in this kind of startlingly beautiful and startlingly vast place that has opened up before you, a place in which you start as a foreigner. You know, and for me, I, I was admit, a little Eustace Scrubby, if we're going to continue the Narnia metaphor. Um, I, I hope I wasn't as unpleasant as he was, but you know, I was really disfluent in the world of Christianity and of Catholicism and of spirituality in general. You know, I kind of had enough trouble with the idea of prayer, including after my conversion, that there was one time I remember where a friend wanted me to kind of give praying a shot with him. You know, and I wasn't a believer, but even imagining how to do it was hard for me. He's like, well, why don't you just try? And I'm like, no, I, I don't actually know how to do that. You know, if, if you really want me to try, I can tell you what I can do. You can start praying, and then you can say, and now God, Leah is going to speak. You know, because I figured I didn't know how to turn prayer on. <laughs> but you know, if, if religion were true and God existed and someone else started praying, they could kind of hand off the telephone to me. I didn't have to do any of the like, difficult, weird work myself. Um, 
And so even after my conversion, when I actually had the desire to pray, I didn't really know exactly what to do. I'd spent so much time in a very philosophical, analytical mold that I was used to thinking about God as a truth proposition. God, yes or no. Um, you know, and about all the evidence on one side or the other. But I was really unused to thinking about kind of God as a person, about how to relate to him or to love him or to receive his love. And that's really what I had to do um, and what I talk about in this book, learning how to be Catholic, not how to be convinced that Catholicism is true. Um, and it's kind of nice that I'm giving this talk as we're starting to approach the season of Pentecost. Because I really like that holiday when we see the disciples preach to all nations in all tongues, including tongues they themselves don't know. You know. And in that moment in the Bible, they're preaching in kind of literal human speech, right? But what I kind of feel that God does for us, and certainly did for me, is preach to us in the languages, not just literal languages, but languages of reference or languages of beauty or even languages of fluency, anything that we recognize and are already comfortable in. God finds a way to offer himself to us in the way that makes sense for us to be able to recognize him and receive him. In my case, that involved a lot of math, musicals, and weird medical facts. Uh, But it did also involve language, and that's kind of one of the stories from the book I want to tell you a bit about how kind of my love of language helped me to start learning how to pray when I took up the practice of Lectio Divina. Now, Lectio Divina is a prayerful way of reading the Bible. which I was pretty sure was important, um, broadly, as a Christian, but I was really unsure what to do. And I could ask people what it was, and they might say, oh, it's a prayerful way of reading the Bible, and I thought, great, okay, yes. Or they might go, well, you know, you should read it, and then you should contemplate it, and then you should ask God about what you're contemplating, then you should meditate on it. And I was like, okay, you have definitely given me more verbs, but I still don't know what to do. And they're like, well, I could translate the verbs back into the original Latin. I'm like, no, no, that's that's the opposite of helpful. Uh, But it was actually translation that helped me a bit at all. Um, So what I was doing, what I was really worried about is I didn't have a good way to read prayerfully. I kind of had two modes for reading. One was the way I read novels, which was kind of a like gulping, excited way, where I want to go through the whole thing and like find out what happens next. And there's a lot of adrenaline going on. And the other one also kind of has a bit of adrenaline. It's a, you know, oh, I'm going to write a paper on this. You know, I need to find out what I think about it quickly. Actually, really quickly. The deadline is coming up. And neither of those seemed right for kind of dwelling with the word of God. So I needed a way to slow down and to actually be able to contemplate. And one thing that I found helpful was just kind of finding ways to slow down by translating the Bible, not in a kind of comprehensive handing it off to someone else way. But you know, I don't speak any other languages fluently, but I have a little bit of French from high school. And I would kind of pause and look at you know, the text and go, okay, how would I translate this? You know, this says that you know, Christ was something. Well, was he was a ete? Or was he was ete? Was he kind of there just for a moment where we're describing a specific moment, this kind of past tense? Or was he imperfectly there? Not that Christ is imperfect. Imperfect in the sense of the tense. You know, this is an ongoing thing that happens to have happened in the past, but might still be going on or cover a large span of time. And this gave me the opportunity to pause and think about what I was reading and to kind of ask what was happening. Um, When I saw a word used repeatedly, you know, even just a word like water or a verb like hope, 
Um, I kind of used a trick I had from theater where I'd go, are these all the same word? I, or if I translated them, would I have to use different words in a different language to encapsulate the different precise meanings of what hope means here? You know, and all this gave me the chance to pause and reflect and not really to kind of rest answers from the text myself, um, but to have a moment of kind of opening uncertainty where I could offer something to God, where this stopped being a totally individual thing that I was doing, where I was reading for me, where I go, oh, I don't understand this. You know, is this simple past or is this imperfect? And what does it mean either way? And sometimes I would get asked God in prayer and sometimes I would bother Dominican friars um, because they're very nice. Um, but it gave me a way to make you know, this prayer an act of motion and an act of petition rather than just an act of reading. And that kind of opened the text to me. One other thing I did when I was doing Lectio Divina that helped open my relationship with God to me is you know, a different kind of trick of learning from my errors. So what I would sometimes do is I would read over a short passage and then close my eyes and try and reproduce the passage in my head. It wasn't because I was trying to memorize the whole Bible or even like small portions of it. I wanted to see what I misremembered. I wanted to see when I tried to complete it as best I could what I expected to see in the Bible. You know, and then I kind of got the idea because I had a voice teacher who I was learning a Sondheim song with um, and I kept singing the wrong note. And she said, Leah, don't feel bad. You know, you're right to expect that note. So that is totally the note that like, resolves this part of the song. And Sondheim's not giving it to you because it's not very nice. You know? like it, you're expecting the right thing, but you can't sing it yet. And, you know, and there I was right in kind of terms of what I expected. But when I read the Bible, I'm not always right. I don't have as good intuitions about God as I do about music. And frankly, my intuitions about music are kind of meh. Um, so I could read over something, close my eyes, see what I remembered, and then notice what I got wrong and what that said about what I expected God to be doing in this passage or in this story. You know, if I was surprised that something said they instead of you, why was it surprising that God was talking not directly to someone? Um, if I was surprised about a verb, all of this again gave me the chance to slow down and ask, what is happening here? And to have the chance to pause and offer that question to God rather than just stay with it and kind of solve it all on my own. And the third way that language is really helpful to me when considering you know, the Bible and prayer is I got pretty lucky in that my church had an ASL translator at Mass, and I was studying ASL, or had been for a little while. And one thing that's really nice is, one, I'm quite bad at ASL. Um, so it takes a lot of focus for me to be able to follow something done in sign language at all. It meant that if I were watching the translator and trying to make sure I could follow what he was saying, I couldn't zone out during Mass. Um, because it was a little foreign and a little difficult. As God actually is to us. You know, we're slightly exiled from him. It's always a bit of a stretch to reach him. But it's hard to remember that when sometimes sitting in mass most closely resembles, you know, my experiences sitting in a lecture in college or sitting at a talk in a big room where maybe you're listening and maybe you're not. Um, but you've certainly had a lot of practice in not listening. So it takes an active change to be able to kind of give up those bad habits and be wholly present in this moment. So I could watch the translator and kind of have a little more attentiveness and mark out this act of listening is different from everywhere else I was doing it. Because it was harder, it took more attention, and it could surprise me. And the one thing that's really great about ASL specifically for me, rather than any other language I could have been hearing the mass translated into, is that ASL is an intensely incarnational language. You know, in English, I'm going to indicate the difference between like uh, fast, quick, 
Speedy Gonzales by picking different words. And in ASL, I might pick different words, or I might indicate it simply by going like, fast, like, really fast, right? Um, I have to involve my body in thinking and speaking and in prayer. And that was already a big jump for me in Catholicism of kind of bringing that attentiveness to the body as a created thing that was beautiful in itself rather than a way to transport my intellect around that like <laughs> occasionally demanded food, frustratingly. Um, so it already felt helpful that I was doing anything incarnational in church, you know, in addition to the standing and the kneeling. But you know, it was amazing what ASL kind of wouldn't let me stop paying attention to in church. In English, if I'm going to talk about you know, a transitive verb, something I do to you, I'm going to indicate it by word order. But if I'm not paying much attention, doesn't that really arrests me and makes me pay attention to who is acting on whom. Um, but in ASL, I'm going to do it by where I'm facing my signs or facing my body. There's a clear, stark difference between God have mercy on me, a sinner, and I, a sinner, have mercy on God. <laughs> So I couldn't not pay attention to who is be doing what to whom. Um, and sometimes I kind of got just especially surprised or delighted. And you know, that one is one of my favorites. It's one of the ones I learned fastest because it's a short, repeated phrase at church. But, you know, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy was just a perfect sign. Um, and it caused me to stop and think about what mercy was. You know, you can see it coming down. It's a soft movement and it. It looked exactly to me like that line from The Merchant of Venice when Portia is speaking at the trial of Shylock. And she says, mercy droppeth from the, uh, like gentle rain from the heavens. It blesses him that giveth and him that receiveth. And if I just heard, you know, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's hard for me to stop and think about what mercy is and what mercy looks like. But having it literally in my field of view made it a lot harder for me to ignore. I could see some of those parallels that I was trying to find in my spiritual reading when I looked at repeated words by seeing repeated signs, by seeing the interpreter when he talked about water flowing from the side of a rock, not picked to show it coming from the side of a rock, but showed it from the side because he knew that the later reading of the Mass was going to be at the side of Christ being pierced. And he wanted us to see it visually, that echo from the Old Testament to the New. So I kind of got to be startled a lot of the time by what I didn't expect to see and by what I couldn't ignore. Another uh, part of Catholic prayer in which I got the chance to learn from what I expected wrongly uh, by looking at what I thought God was doing, noticing I was mistaken, and kind of correcting my understanding as I went was confession. I mean, confession is actually my favorite sacrament, which I always feel like I should put an ironically in front of that um, I don't think it's deserved. I think it's easy for confession to feel like the sacrament about how terrible we are, but luckily, God can make do, right? Um, because when I went to confession, you know, I, it was hard for me not to feel like I was bartering my repentance for forgiveness. Um, you know, it's kind of the thing where you just go and apologize to someone so objectly that you're both too humiliated to kind of go on having this fight or acknowledging what you did anything to get you kind of off the floor and stop the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Like, okay, okay, get up. Um, you know, and, and I could tell that was the case because I would walk out of the confessional and go, that was a really small penance. Like, I should do something larger. Like, it's not fair I was given a small penance because now, like, my work is not proportional to God's work in forgiving me. And that, that was kind of my hint that I was on the wrong track <laughs> of how I understood it. There's actually even a passage in a book that also came out last week, uh, Rosamond Hodge's um, 
Cruel Beauty, no, Cruel Beauty, yes. Uh, no, Crimson Bound, sorry, she has several books. Rosamund Hodge's Crimson Bound, where her protagonist goes to confession after a long time away from the church and kind of dwelling with a particularly troubling sin. And the priest says to her, you know, all right, you know, you're forgiven. Pray three rosaries, one for each year of your life you've spent apart. And she's like, are, are you sure three? Like only three? And he goes, oh, do you also have to confess that you doubt God's mercy? And she's like, <laughs> and she goes, um, yes. And he goes, all right, well then, like, since you had this additional sin, your penance is one rosary. <laughs> and I had that exact same problem. So I could kind of tell, like with the Sondheim and like with the Lectio, that I was hitting the wrong note. Um, and I could see what I expected, this kind of bartering thing. But I had to kind of work and see what was actually happening. I knew where I was off, but I didn't know what was on. Um, and so part of it for me was you know, thinking about what it was I was doing when I felt shame or when I offered shame to God. Uh, what was shame? And one way I kind of understood it, you know, as you might expect, was by thinking about congenital analgesia. Uh, you know, congenital analgesia, uh, congenital is something you're born with. Analgesia is the inability to feel pain. Uh, so these are people who are born who kind of don't get the data from their pain receptors that we all do. Because I was trying to push on, like, my understanding of what shame was. What would it be like to be without shame? Would it be nice? You know? And the thing about people with congenital analgesia is you might think, oh, that'd be awesome, you know? Like, I stubbed my toe the other day, and that was terrible, you know? And I burned myself, and that was also terrible, you know? And then I was, you know... Uh, grading things, and I accidentally graded my hand, and that too was terrible. I would like to not feel any of those kinds of pain. But you know, pain isn't a thing; it doesn't happen on its own very often. It's a response to damage. It's a warning system. For people with congenital analgesia, life is very dangerous because they don't get the warnings that the rest of us are used to. Some of the congenital analgesia won't notice they've sprained their ankle, so they'll keep walking on it and making it worse unless they visually inspect it and notice it's swollen. When I touch a hot stove, I don't even have time to notice until my hand's already off. But if I had congenital analgesia, I'd have to wait till I smelled the burning flesh before it occurred to me to move it. And the fact that I wasn't in pain at the beginning would not eliminate the damage that was done by the time my hand was finally off the stove. And shame is a lot like that. You know, shame doesn't happen by itself, mysteriously. Shame is a response to sin, to recognizing sin. Um, it's a response to damage, to a wound. You know, and like pain, it's there to help me. You know, it's not there as a punishment any more than the pain is a punishment when you touch a stove. It's to help me move uh, and to help me move away from this. So when I feel shame, you know, part of what I'm offering to God when I acknowledge it and bring it to the confessional is, you know, you know, thank you, God, for giving me a way to notice that I was sinning. You know, thank you for giving me a way that this still feels alien or like a wound to me. It would be much worse to sin and to not notice anything was wrong. It would be much worse for sin to feel like a natural part of myself. Every ounce of shame I feel or every like jolt of pain or repentance is something that is moving me away from the sin and back towards God. It's something to welcome. It's something that protects me. And not, not to welcome in the sense of seek out opportunities to have it, um, but in the sense of, you know, this moves me back towards you. This is here to protect me, and it speaks to the fact that sin is not good for me in the same way that sprained ankles and burned hands are not good for me. It's good to have that knowledge and that awareness. So that kind of prepared me a little more to go back into the confessional, to think about my 
shame just being a response to the world, to the way the world works, and part of a healthy functioning of a spiritual being, rather than something I was going to bring and like make a big pile of and show exactly how good I was in feeling the shame. But I still kind of had to think a little bit about what God was doing in response to this. You know, because I've been thinking a lot in terms of desert, you know. Am I deserving God's forgiveness, you know? Is, am I not offering enough on my end? And confession really isn't about what we deserve. It's about what God wants for us. You know, if I fall down and gash my knee and my friend, like, runs into me, they don't go, oh, I wonder if Leah deserves to, like, have that wound fixed. They just move towards me immediately, go, oh, my gosh, you're hurt. Can I help? You know, and God does this for us all the time whenever we're hurt by sin, uh, you know, he sees us in pain and he wants to make it better. You know, he needs our consent to do it. He needs us to go to confession or to seek him out in some way to help us. But it's that same kind of movement of, oh, gosh, you know, are you all right? Like, can I help? And one thing that helped me kind of understand what a response to woundedness rather than just a response to suckiness or evil looks like. Uh, I used to study pottery more when I was younger. You know, and some pots I made were good. Some pots exploded in the kiln. And like some got broken later down the line. And most of the time when you're trying to fix something, you know, I would take out the super glue and try and piece everything together as carefully as possible. And then turn the broken side to the wall so that it didn't look like I had ever knocked over this thing, especially if it belonged to my roommate. Um, <laughs> and that's not what the kind of healing we receive in confession looks like. It's not that kind of invisible healing of like, oh, gosh, you're hurt. Like, let's make it so this never happened. It'd be better to forget. It's kind of, it's shameful in a bad way that you're even here at all. Like, let's get this over with. Don't talk about this. Um, it's healing like a different kind of pottery repair that I learned about. Um, it's called kintsugi, and it's a Japanese style of pottery repair. And what it does is that when you're piecing the pot back together, instead of kind of piecing it together as perfectly as possible with invisible glue, you bind together the broken shards with gold enamel. So you can't miss where the pot was broken. But the thing that mends it is beautiful. So when you see it, you don't see the pot as it was. You see the pot as it is now, made more beautiful by the act of having been healed. So that when I go to confession, you know, I'm not in a position of asking God to make me like I was right before this happened. I've kind of just to roll back the clock and let's, let's just do this over, pretend that we have never here, overwrite the timeline, you know. Uh, because that would also be a very small thing to ask. Like, the person I was just before this happened was the person who was about to do this thing. It's kind of not even sufficient for me to just kind of want to go back. I want to be more so that the next time this happens, I act differently. And what God does when he heals us from our sins is he touches us, you know, in a way that our wound itself becomes a sign of our connection to him. Our wounds are made glorified through his healing in the same way that his own wounds were glorified when he returned in his resurrected body. You know, Christ doesn't erase the marks of his life on earth. They're transfigured and they're made glorious. And it is the same thing when we offer ourselves to him. And, you know, I could think about this in the context of the pot um, and think about actually desiring more from God. Whereas I'd been worried about kind of not offering enough to get what I was receiving, it taught me kind of to ask for more in confession, uh, to be made to be healed in a way that was kind of more startling and more vivid, um, in a way that I was proud to bear the marks of his love for me. Um, you know, and it kind of gave me the sense 
that when I didn't go to confession for a while, it probably wasn't because everything was going really, really well. Uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of peacefulness in not going to confession or of not having a specific thing you know you need to confess. You know, it's kind of the peacefulness that a parent has when, like, it's very quiet in the other room where the kids are playing. <laughs> and at first, that's great, you know? Like, you finally get the chance to read Leah's new book. Um, but the longer it's quiet, the more it's probably not because everything is going really well. You know, and it led me to think, you know, the longer I don't go to confession, is it because I'm really strong and whole and just super awesome today? Or am I, like, kind of a pot spider web with cracks that's just, like, hoping no one jostles it? Because I really don't want to acknowledge that anything about me is imperfect this moment. And I don't trust that healing would make me better, that healing wouldn't be disgusting in some way. You know, and, you know, in the book I talk about kind of a lot of different ways that I learned to pray and a lot of different sources that kind of taught me how to offer things to God. But one reason I really hold on to confession is one of the first places I feel like I really learned a little about what to ask for when I wanted to ask God for anything in being Catholic is because if God responds to our wounds and our sins by kind of veining them with glory, you know, and transfiguring them and making them a sign of his love for us, you know, what can I do by offering him not just my sins, but my good works or my joy or, you know, my love for others or even my fears or anything else? If this is what the worst part of me gets when I offer it to God, you know, part of what was fun about writing this book is it was a way of looking at my prayer life and looking at how everything else I loved could point me to God, a way of, you know, offering my love of Javert. Am I noticing how it was kind of sounding the wrong note ethically and realizing that and turning back towards God and offering that to him to be transfigured, of taking my intense and passionate love of math. In the book, it's only Cartesian uh, geometry, so I'll have to write a sequel if you want to learn calculus while learning to pray. But <laughs> I could take kind of my love of this spatial reasoning and understanding how things existed in relationship to each other and use it to help understand the Mass, the way that we're all close to the saints at Mass. And I could offer that. And that everything I handed over to God would be touched by him and made greater and more glorious. And so that's kind of been, for me, you know, in many small, specific, and almost arbitrary loves, what I've done in learning to become Catholic. And it's a way of keeping that line open, kind of the phone I didn't know how to pick up, so that everything could be offered and could be transfigured and could be veined with glory. Thank you. We have time for questions. If you raise your hand, I'll bring the microphone around. Hi, thank you for your talk. I have two questions, uh, one of which is you came from Yale, which was not, not, is often known as a place, a very secular place. And uh, how have your friends reacted uh, to to your conversion. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> so some of them are here. <laughs> and and my second question is, uh, yesterday came out in the news, there's some recent surveys about millennials, and I'm just curious about your, if you've understood from your perspective, you know, why people are uh, of that generation are perhaps not coming back to religion of any sort, particularly Catholicism. I saw the statistics yesterday. So those, those two questions, thanks. Right, let me hit them both in order. So with regard to Yale, uh, the reason you heard a couple people in the room snickering um, who went to college with me is because it's true that Yale like, doesn't have a strong religious orientation as an entire college. Um, 
One thing I did at Yale, though, was uh, I did a lot of debating, not kind of competitive debating where you're trying to win in front of a judge, but philosophical debating where the only points are changing people's minds. Um, it's way more fun and higher stakes, too. And the debate group that I was part of at Yale actually had a reputation as a Catholic factory, or rather as a Catholic and Orthodox factory. Um, and I think part of that was that you know, when people kind of were really delving into deep ethical issues and were confronted with people who strongly disagreed with them, that it wouldn't be unusual to have a postmodernist yell at a nihilist, yell at a virtue ethicist, you know, yell at a utilitarian, all in love, you know, all on the debate floor together. They have to think a lot about how you know what you know and what you need to do as a result. And that drove a lot of people to decide, and I was one of them, that God was the most likely answer for how to live and how we knew how to live. Part two, millennials. <laughs> I mean, so there are a couple answers to what is going on with those young people today. Um, Ross, <laughs> Ross, Ross Douthat uh, has one take on kind of the millennial falling away from church and that he thinks that part of this is just being driven by a normal cyclical thing where people kind of go walk about from their faith, you know, during the period after adolescence and then as they settle down, um, often come back once they have families, and that our generation is delaying marriage and delaying childbearing much more. And we'll have to wait and see if this kind of same pattern is happening, but stretched out over a longer period of time. So that's Ross's answer. And my answer is I just don't find millennial to be a very coherent category. Um, you know, I think I have a lot more in common with people kind of from, you know, a number of things like people from Long Island who speak Yiddish, people from like my same socioeconomic class, like people from similar religious backgrounds now that I've changed than I do specifically with everyone who happens to be the same age as me. So I think there's a weird chunking that happens when we run the data on what are millennials up to. Um, and that can give you a portrait of the whole group, but it doesn't tell us very much about the causes of what's going on within it. So you've spoken really beautifully about the ways that God reaches to us um, from where we already are, uh, especially if we come to Christ uh, as adults um, with you know, childhoods and histories and backgrounds. Um, what about, uh, hopefully, uh, our children who, you know, sh hopefully, hypothetically, shouldn't have to have these experiences? I'm, Leah babysits my daughter. Um, <laughs> um, it's a really excellent daughter. Who, who sh you know, hopefully will come to Christ uh, without, uh, before they are grown-ups. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, catechesis for the young? Yeah, I have a thought, and I'm trying to find the quote about it. It's not my quote. It's a quote from Terry Pratchett about it um, in my book. I'm trying to remember where I stuck it. <laughs> Let's see. All right, I'm just going to summarize, unless anyone else has found it at their seat. Thank you. <laughs> Yvonne, you're the best. So the question was, in case anyone got distracted during that odyssey, um, this is how I've approached kind of constant conversion in life as an adult, but what does it mean for the young? You know, and one thing, I felt like I kind of envied people who were brought up in the faith a bit um, while I was doing Lectio and while I was kind of having the option of having ASL be a language that I was learning entirely in the context of church mostly, that when I saw these words, you know, even if I saw them in a different context, I don't know how many contexts in which I'm going to see the word lamb you know, outside of church since I live in a city, uh, but mercy or even um, strong, like everything I saw, I tended to see in church first. So I kept thinking about church when I recognized it later. And that's the Pratchett quote I wanted, which is, um, you know, Terry Pratchett has a bit in his 
satirical novel about printing and the press, uh, where he talks about the weirdness of movable type, which is not a thing we think about very much because we're used to, in fact, we're not even used to movable type anymore, right? You just type. There's no taking letters, setting them all in a particular way, shaking them out, rejumbling them, making a new text. Um, but that's what he's talking about. And he says, that this is the reason people in his book feared movable type. But if you took the leaden letters that had previously been used to set the words of a god and then used them to set a cookery book, what did that do to the holy wisdom? For that matter, what did it do to the pie? <laughs> As for printing a book of spells and then using the same type for a book of navigation, well, the voyage might go anywhere. And I think that people who are raised in the faith have the opportunity to benefit from that kind of, that the first way that many of their experiences are cast is in the context of the Christian story. So that even when they grow and change and move away from it, if they do, that you know, however they jumble up the type again, it was once used to set this story. And you'll understand everything else in that context. You know, and that's what I really liked about like having ASL be almost you know, a baptized language for me, because I couldn't not think about church when I was using it. Um, and I like kind of having some parts of my life that I have found for the first time through church for that reason. But I recognize that because I grew up outside of it, it's a really vanishingly small percentage of things that are. Uh, what role did prayer play in your conversion? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm impressed that mm-hmm. your book is about prayer and, and, and you sort of downplayed the conversion, mm-hmm. at least maybe you're tired of telling the story. It's um, a really long story. <laughs> but is there, a, is there a, a place that uh, prayer played in the story? Not really, not in a big way. Um, so kind of the, the only place that prayer entered in as I was studying Catholicism and trying to decide what to do about it um, is that I got to a point in kind of all my arguments and all my reading and all my thinking where I felt like Catholicism wasn't, on, you know, wasn't uh, de facto crazy, which was, which was an important step in the conversion process. It wasn't like so flawed internally that I didn't have to consider it. Um, then it would need a reason to be true for me to believe it but it wasn't kind of exiled from the grounds of like permissible things to consider. And so when I got to that point, you know, I kind of occasionally like went, well, God, like if you exist, I desire to believe in you insofar as I desire to believe things that are true. Um, <laughs> but it was much more kind of, at that time, it was much more a statement about my own desires than it was desires I was directing towards anyone. It was just more like, well, it is certainly virtuous to desire to believe true things, and I want to be virtuous. But it was not, and so make me that way. Um, so a lot more of the praying happened afterwards. Uh, Lev, thank you so much for, for sharing today. Uh, so I remember like reading Pathios blogs in like 2012, <laughs> and like your blog and Mark Barnes, and... Um, like, do you have any, like, do's and don'ts for people who want to share their faith with, like, uh, an atheist? Um, Not online, I assume. Uh, I, I, either or. I mean, okay. yeah. Because it's different answers for each one. Really? Yeah. Um, well, because when you're online, you're writing one to many, and you don't know your audience very well. You don't know the specific people who are reading. And if you're sharing your faith with an atheist in everyday life, hopefully you know something about the person you're talking to. So, you know, when you write online, um, and this is a lot of the stuff I do, like, I try not to pressure myself too much to be all of Catholicism to all people who walk in. 
Um, you know, sometimes people ask me questions, including my comm boxes, like, Leah, like, can you discuss this historical thing about the scrap of parchment that was found, and, like maybe Jesus' wife, what, what's happening? Shouldn't you answer this, you are Catholic? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> nope. I'm just profoundly unqualified to answer that question. Like, I, you should ask someone who knows literally anything about archaeology. Like, I can repeat news stories to you a bit, um, but that's it. So what kind of when they're just, like, just very smaller about like the claims I can make, and more of what I share is, wow, this confused me, but here are some things I'm thinking about. This delighted me. Here's why, but not kind of all of apologetics, one-stop shop. Here you go. Because <laughs> uh, I think that's an unbelievably unrealistic promise to make, uh, and I think it ignores the fact that you know, like this is a church of like hands and feet and eyes, etc. And there are some things kind of I study or that I might illuminate to my friends or. Who knows? Illuminate to the whole church. Probably no one else is like doing the Cartesian coordinate thing. Who knows? Um, <laughs> like it's not the most central thing to the church, but it might be. It might be mine. Um, but you know, I don't need to be the whole church to anyone. I should give what I can, and if I can direct them to someone who's better, I should do that too. But I shouldn't give people half answers or pretend to know more than I do. Um, and I try and explain sometimes when it comes up, like, yeah, I can't answer that question. That wasn't what, like, historical analysis wasn't what led me into the church. Maybe you should ask one of those people, or maybe you should ask a historian. Um, when it comes to individuals, I have, like, almost no generic advice, because hopefully you're never speaking to generic people. Um, my major advice is that if, my two pieces of advice, I have two principles deep in your head that will hopefully generate the right strategy particular to the person you're talking to. Um, one is to think about symmetry. So when you're speaking to someone, imagine that it turns out they were right and you were wrong, and Catholicism is not true. Are you having your conversation in a way that would allow you to notice or like allow them to make any headway against you? Because you need them to be doing the same thing with regard to you. So if I'm talking the whole time, for example, even though I'm right, like, this is not a strategy that generalizes well if I'm wrong. Um, and so I need to invite someone to have a conversation that would allow either of us to shift our position depending on which of us is wrong. Uh, and that makes it comfortable to admit errors. So that's, again, like when me saying, oh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, rather than kind of to BS my way through it or to go, I can reveal nothing that implies I don't understand everything about the Catholic faith, because then everything would crumble. Like, I need room for the other person to also admit ignorance, um, both so that we can have a productive conversation, maybe so that I can find the places where they don't know something where they're actually wrong and then, like, push them on a bit more, you know, but then I have to let them do it to me. Um, so symmetry. Because if you want them to give ground, you have to be ready to have a way, conversation in a way that you could. Uh, and the other thing is, I think, just playing a longer game than people usually play. Um, almost no one converts like in those kind of sidewalk conversions where you go, did you ever think that you've once done a bad thing? <laughs> Doesn't that mean that God hates you? Well, how exciting. God can love you right now if you change your mind the second. Like, those things make people to do something this second. They're really bad theology and they're really unsustainable because like you've had a glancing contact with someone so when they next have questions will they come back to you no like you met them on the street um do they have like anything to gird their like momentary sinner's prayer of faith no like so anything that where you're actually trying to be helpful to your friend in the long term means helping them in the long term um and it means having conversations that often i think for initial conversations too are more about stoking curiosity and sharing delight. So I don't need to tell my friend, I have the best argument. I've brought it to our first conversation. I hope you yield now. Because <laughs> like, I have dinner plans. Um, <laughs> like, the goal of my first conversation is for there to be a second conversation. So my goal is to show them something that's really compelling and interesting about Catholicism, if I can, something that they will find beautiful, 
so that if it were true, this would be a good thing, you know? And in lieu of that or paired with that, like something super weird, so that they want to just stick around and ask me follow-up questions. So for example, if I say to my friend, you know, well, I had some trouble with the theology of the Eucharist, but then I reflected on how it resembled people in China who were completely mummified in honey. <laughs> and you all, you all want to know, right? <laughs> well, it's in the book. So like, now you're all stuck. But if you said that to your friend, their option is to keep talking to you. Or if they know it's in the book, they can buy my book and like give it. Um, but so my goal is always to have a, not just a conversation, but a connection with this person and to make that as easy as possible and let the rest kind of sort itself out in all the other little stages. Hi. I just wanted to uh, get your uh, advice for uh, talking with my girlfriend. Uh, she is, uh, you know, raised Catholic, but she has a rather weak faith, you know, questions a lot of the things about the faith. I, on the other hand, you know, the other uh, extreme, you know, I can hit a conversion when I was in my 20, in my 20s. And uh, sometimes it seems to be that I try to explain something. She's like, well, you're being preachy. How can I talk, talk with her about my faith without uh, having her like... <laughs> okay, I have a couple suggestions sourced from a few different places. So pick the ones that seem most helpful and try those first, I guess. Uh, one is just that St. Monica didn't wind up converting Augustine by explaining things to him most of the time but by praying for him and just caring for him. So sometimes like, it's not actually the case that even if we're trying to help other people discover the faith that we're the instrument of their being convinced, but we might be the instrument of just like, care from Christianity to them. Um, and like, some of what that means is giving yourself a little permission that God has not made this person's salvation contingent on how good you are at explaining Catholicism. Like, you can help, you can be like a handmaiden in this project, but it's definitely not going to rest or fall on your rhetoric. Um, which I find helpful just in terms of, like, I have friends who get kind of very anxious about this sometimes, um, you know, especially for people they care about. Um, and for me, you know, I think that I'm here to help God, and, you know, and that's wonderful if I can, but sometimes what's being asked of me to help is different than what I feel like is what I'm best at. And sometimes, you know, that it just doesn't all rest on me, that the way I help will be much smaller than what I think. Um, the other thing is... Uh, three pieces of advice and that was the first one um, the second one is from when I was a teacher at a rationality camp workshop thing uh, where we'd often have people kind of bring up a different kind of question which is like man I'm so rational and like my girlfriend my boyfriend like my parents are so irrational I keep trying to tell them like what would be better and they keep not listening or like they keep having their hackles raised even when I'm explaining in good faith like and one piece of advice we gave people was not to explain what you know, but to share what you're having trouble with. So like when you come back from the workshop and like you're really good at these three rationality things, all of which you're, you know, your father is terrible at. Pick the fourth one, the one that like, you think is a good idea, but you're having trouble implementing, and ask for your father's help with that. So they get to see how rationality, in this case, Christ like, works in your life, but they see it from a place of your own vulnerability um, and from a place of your trusting them to see you in that moment and to help you. Um, and the other piece of advice is sourced from Dan Savage, who's actually best known for giving kind of <laughs> sex-related advice. But where he just says, like, when something becomes a sticking point, sometimes you should just not ask about it again for a while until someone can hear you ask or hear you bring up the topic without flinching. But if it's, like, gotten to the point where you both feel really uncomfortable when it comes up, you just need to give, like, your partner some time so that it's kind of less tied up with the feeling of nervousness, like, how will people feel when this conversation happens?
I think that's a good rule for things outside the bedroom. So, <laughs> Leah, this, this has been a wonderful talk, and thank you so much for giving it. Um, I guess I wanted to know if there was anything specific that surprised you as you went through the process of converting. Let's see. I'm trying to think of like one specific one rather than. You can do more than one. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so one that surprised me was kind of petitionary prayer, what on earth is it good for? Um, in terms of that, that's the one that, especially before I was Catholic and even afterwards, um, seemed unnecessary to God, who already knows things. So me saying, I wish blank, was silly and annoying um, in that I don't like Instagram or Snapchat, which is like people sending me moment-to-moment -moment trivialities about their life. So like, why would God like that better from me? Um, but one of the reasons I had most trouble with petitionary prayer was just that it also seemed like it was about weakness in a way I didn't like to. Like, oh, God, like, this is hard. Like, please, instead of making me stronger, just make everything easier. Like, because I am too much of a wuss to handle this on my own. Like, and one, one woman I had specific trouble with this was someone who was, who had really upset me. You know, and a friend of mine suggested I pray for her. And I said, like, well, like, I should pray that God change someone else because I can't, like, be the better person here. Like, if I'm going to pray for anything, it's, like, for more patience for me, not that someone else be nicer to me. Um, and so that's where I think, like, I always have to go, like, wrong enough that I can see my error, right? Like, ah, I hate how little penance you're giving me. Oh, I'm misunderstanding confession. What? Why would I ask God to make someone be nice? Like, I'm misunderstanding a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but that was a moment where it was easier for me to see that praying informed me a lot of the time more than it informed God. That the fact that I could see that I might want to pray for this person to be nicer, but I was resistant to it pointed at something weird about our, our relationship, for one thing, and what my expectations of what God wanted were. Like, God didn't just want my awesome, strong virtue. Come at me like bullies. Like, I will repel you all with my kindness. <laughs> like, God would not want to see me crowing atop, like, a mound of shamed people, right? <laughs> that, like, what he wanted was communion between the two of us. So it wasn't unreasonable to want her to be nice to me for her own sake, not for my weakness. It would be good for her to love me, not just because it would make my life easier. And so this is the kind of thing where, like, thinking about what I would ask for in petitionary prayer made me notice what I was misunderstanding about God. And then back to my initial, like, hesitance of just, like, isn't this whole trivialities, right, um, for kind of the smaller things? One way I wound up thinking about it is, like, there's a period when you start going out with someone where you start, like, texting them more or, in my case, like, sending them more links to articles about... <laughs> particle detectors and the opera collider and things. So like people are very lucky when that happens to them, I guess. <laughs> but, it, but it happens because the opera experiment with the neutrino detector is A, really interesting, and it in fact enlivens people's life to know about it. But also because someone who cares about you cares about your delight, and they'd rather know. Um, and that means you send a lot more trivial things as your intimacy grows. Uh, and that's different than what I see kind of when it's like social media and it's going to everyone, it's not intimate, right? Versus when it's going between me and someone I'm starting to care for who's starting to care for me. And in caring about each other in our particularity, we want to know and see each other better and better. So that's kind of the framework I use. Like sending links to a boyfriend is like offering prayers to God. And I should do more of both if I want to have a strong connection to either. <laughs> Um, you're obviously uh, been blessed with a great intellect, and that was 
your road to God or, or, or vice versa. But there are other means in the Catholic mm -hmm. experience and, and other religious traditions, mysticism, emotional uh, connections and so forth. And I'm curious from the from the rationalist perspective, what do you make of those alternative mm -hmm. roads uh, as uh, as as means of uh, communi reaching communion? Yeah, I think sometimes you know I kind of look at them in awe. Sometimes I look at them in terror. Uh, I, I'm really like there's a reason contemplative prayer is not in this book. Um, and it's because I'm really bad at it, and I didn't find a productive way to write about being bad about it. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that we get to do in a church is to learn from each other. So I do have friends who, you know, are much more, much more of their life and their connection from God comes to contemplative, through contemplative prayer. And so even though I still can barely even attempt it, <laughs> I get to kind of see it at a greater distance through their lives, it's kind of, it's almost like looking at an eclipse, right? Where it's too much for me to look at. And so I'd have to look through a pinprick hole. Like, contemplating God in silence and isolation is honestly too much for me at this moment. Like, and I've tried in really small bits if I'm trying it at all. But when I have a friend who loves it, they're like that kind of pinhole camera I can look at this through. I can look at how it touches their life and how it delights them. You know, and hopefully I can do the same thing for them with the practice of being super weird spiritually. Um, and hyperlexical. Um, but I think that's kind of also part of the beauty of the saints, the diversity of the saints, in that, you know, we don't see many saints who were good at all the different kinds of prayer. Um, oh, maybe a couple, but Mary. But, <laughs> but what we see is kind of ways of intensely consecrating your life to God in the way that suits you and your particularity, or in some ways the way that you didn't think suits you but wound up suiting you. And we see these kind of spiritual practices full-blown in their lives. Um, and then we can look at that to guide ours, both in kind of exploring them in small ways or maybe giving our life to them in big ways. Yeah, thanks so much for your talk. Um, I loved and found very beautiful what you were talking, saying about confession and how, why would God, why, why should we want to be the person we were just before we committed these sins? And I, I think you said something along the lines of, um, you know, why don't I basically dare to or, or have the imagination to ask for more and to be that beautiful, piece-together Japanese pottery? Um, to broaden that insight out, I would ask, what would you suggest to, to us here to expand our imaginations to think that God's big enough to handle all the things that we want to bring to him or can bring to him? I have a couple small ideas because... <laughs> I'm still not that great at this. And I'll start by just saying what makes it really hard for me to do in the hopes that kind of in the spirit of one of my earlier answers, I'll say what doesn't work for me very well, you know, and maybe that will help you believe the next thing I say, but maybe one of you will solve my problem and then come back and tell me later, which would be great. Um, one thing that makes it hard for me to ask big things of God is because it makes it really obvious I can't do them on my own. Um, then asking to be me a few minutes ago was still something that was already about me as I knew myself, right? Um, asking to be much better and more saintly is a larger jump, and it's one I can't make on my own. And to be honest, like, especially if I'm not thinking about it, what it feels most natural to ask for is something I totally could have done myself, you know, so it doesn't imply anything about my weakness or reliance on God. Um, you know, to ask to be much more generous with my time or anything than I am sounds too transformative and too obviously I couldn't do this myself, and it's hard to ask for that because it means admitting weakness for me. There's a bit in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce where he's describing all these different people who are kind of offered entrance to heaven and what keeps them from going in. And you read it going like, man, how could anyone give up heaven just to like persist in that sin? 
what are these people thinking? Then you get to the page that like turns out to describe you and you feel kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, it was, it was the one where, um, where there's some academic who wants to like go up and do awesome theology about God in heaven, you know, and like is going to contribute to this. And they're like, well, like you can think about God, sure, but like it's not necessary. Like you're not needed. No one is going to like perish for lack of you here. And he's like, no. <laughs> It's like, no, no, like, you've, like, often squandered your gifts, but, like, your own talents are not needed here. You're welcome here, but you're not needed here. He's like, well, I'm going to go sit outside then for a bit. So that's kind of where I get stuck on the large imagination, because it's things that go beyond what is needed for me. Um, in terms of how to get there, and again, so I take little tiny steps towards it, because I can't do it all in one jump. Um, one thing that helped me in terms of thinking of new things to ask God for, and kind of broadening my horizons um, in what was possible, is that there's kind of reading the lives of the saints is one thing, but that like, was at the too much level for me a lot of the time, right? I can read about Catherine of Siena and be terrified of Catherine of Siena and not kind of get to the point where I go, like, God, please, like, afflict me with diseases so I can drag myself to church, like, in love of me. And I'm like, I don't understand what to ask. I understand she was holy, but I don't understand the jump, you know. So I actually find it more helpful to look for, like, goodness in other people which maybe isn't like Catherine of Siena level goodness, but it's goodness I don't possess very much. Um, so when I did my exam and I got kind of stuck because my days were all pretty similar. And so I do my exam and I'd review my day. It's a prayerful way of reviewing the day. And it was kind of the same prayer every day. It's like, well, I did this, I overslept, but I also went to mass, so that was good and that was bad. It was repetitive and I couldn't come up with new things to ask. It was too much of a jump. So I just thought about friends I knew, you know, some of whom were Christian, some of whom weren't and what opportunities they might have seen in my day that I was ignoring. What ways would they have had to be good to people? Like, oh yeah, like, it's a pretty uneventful day, didn't talk to my coworkers much. Oh, but some of my friends, like, would have been talking to my coworkers, and people might have asked them for help, or they might have asked for help themselves. That's something I could ask God for. So like, really small, but impressive, examples of virtue just from the lives of people around you that you don't have currently as much space in your life. That's my answer. Coming from a background that was not raised Catholic and kind of more atheist and of the world. How was your experience being received by Catholics that were completely covered in the uh, social group of Catholicism? Oh, I got super lucky. And if you know friends who are being received into the church, you should try and make sure they're this lucky. Because I didn't actually get lucky. I had people who cared about me who like put a lot of effort into my feeling lucky. Um, so when I decided I was going to convert to Catholicism, I already had some friends, mostly from college, who were Catholic or Orthodox, you know, who cared about me and who were paying attention to me, and that was pretty nice. But the other thing I got was uh, one of the priests at the Dominican House of Studies, Father Thomas Joseph White, I told him I was converting, and he said, like, oh, this is great, you know. Like, let me tell you which parish you should go to. <laughs> like, you should go to St. Peter on the Hill. Like, they have summer RCIA. You won't have to wait around to be Catholic. Also, here are the people I'm going to introduce you to at the parish. Like, and in fact, like, one of the people he introduced me to, my friend Sarah, like, He's like, yeah, you, you'll hang out with Sarah. That will be good. You know, he said everything like very declaratively. <laughs> you don't have to do that part. It works better in a habit, I think, than it does otherwise. But you know, I met my friend Sarah just solely on the basis of, hi, Father Thomas Joseph White said I should meet you. And like, he seemed very emphatic. Um, and so like, we met and we were in a bar that was not a karaoke bar, which is relevant. Um, and we're singing Sondheim like, loudly within 10 minutes of meeting. And so I didn't just come into the church as a building. Um, I came into the church as a community, and people around me made sure that specific people were tasked with caring about me, 
And again, caring about me in my particularity, right? That Father Thomas Joseph White didn't just pick, I assume, the nicest person he knew at St. Peter's. That Sarah is very nice. Like, he picked someone who he thought would respond well to me and care for me as an individual. You know? And without that, like, I was lucky. I already had a lot of friends who cared for me. But without that, I'd be doing more kind of sitting in church by myself, like thinking about God by myself and not doing any of the horizontal movement within the church. We have time for one more question. You joked about this earlier, and a bit off topic, but I was curious. What exactly is the problem with thinking about your body as the vehicle for your brain? <laughs> so this, this isn't a problem that like, was an intuitive problem to me, I'll say. Um, this is like, there are some things that are Catholicism teachers that I thought were true before I was Catholic, and the fact that Catholicism said them was a point in Catholicism's favor. There are some things that I believe because I am Catholic, you know, and I was convinced of Catholicism on other grounds, and I believe it because I trust the church. And the, my body is more than a vehicle for my brain is honestly more on the second half of those things um, because it rests on certain tenets of Catholicism that I don't think are universally or universally believed. You know, that God made me in a particular way, not only my soul but my body, and that there's something particularly well-suited between the two of those. That's something I believe by faith, you know, and sometimes like by examples, but mostly by faith. Um, it's not something I think is obvious outside the church. Um, but I say this as someone who like, was super excited about robot bodies before, <laughs> before converting. Um, so I'm not the best person to make kind of a natural law argument for why the body is intrinsically interesting. Uh, you can say, I could add, right, that like, one thing that's interesting about the body is that it is limited um, and that so are other parts of me, but not as obviously. And being reminded of all of my limitations makes me more mindful of the ones that are immaterial um, so that I act more responsibly. One thing that's been helpful to me that is quasi on the same topic, so I'm going to go for it, um, is that for Advent at one point, and then I kept doing it after Advent, like my Advent discipline was to have a bedtime um, because I like, was going to bed at haphazard times, reading and things, being on the internet. Um, and so I set a bedtime, like I was going to go to bed by 1 a.m. every night. Uh, <laughs> Which, you know, which I mostly did. Um, but that was about setting a limit that I couldn't ignore. Um, it's obviously true that there was a natural limit on how late I could stay up every night. But when there wasn't an external natural limit, it was easy for me to push um, and to kind of be irresponsible or to assume if I didn't stay up late enough, it was because I like, lacked the will to do so. Um, that makes more sense at 1.30. Don't laugh. Like, you're all hearing that thought at like 7. Um, and so having an external limit, you go, oh, yeah, right. Like, I actually don't have infinite time in a day. Like, it's good to be reminded of that. I should behave as though that's true, even though it's not obvious to me all the time. I actually don't have, like, infinite ability to act in the world. I don't have infinite strength. Like, that's so much less obvious to me when I'm totally in abstract thoughts land than it is when I get winded going upstairs. Because uh, I suck. <laughs> but I suck in a productive way that is ordered to my spiritual good that reminds me that I should ask God for greater things, like the ability to go upstairs without wheezing, the will to go and exercise ever, and uh, <laughs> greater kindness and mercy that I see exemplified in the lives of my friends and the saints. Thank you. Thank you.